Amen. You can be seated. Hypocrites. What do we do? Knowing that even in this place, this morning, are hypocrites. How are we to live and respond as Christians when we live in a world that is filled with those who look right but are not? Have you ever struggled at all? with someone who has proclaimed that they are a Christian, believes in Jesus, and does not live for him in any way whatsoever, who confesses with their mouth one thing and lives something totally different. Have you ever struggled with what to do with the person who used to teach your Sunday school class and now doesn't even say they love Jesus anymore. Can I give you some hope this morning? This is not the first time in which that has taken place. In Jesus' day, there were those who proclaimed to love him and lived not for him. And God knows our hearts. God knows how we feel and God knows how we think. And so God knowing us and knowing our hearts and knowing how we think, he knows we're going to struggle with what do we do in this world when it is filled with hypocrites. I believe the parable of the weeds shows us important truths about how we are to live, knowing that there is hypocrisy all around us. But I think in order to do that well, we should probably once again ask God to help us. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, these are hard verses. And God... These are parts of your word that we wish, God, we saw in full culmination right now. God, these parts of your word are the parts we wish you had already eradicated fully. And yet we know that you haven't done that yet. And if you haven't done it yet, it means you have a reason why you haven't done it yet. And so God, this morning more than anything, I pray you will help us to see that you are trustworthy, God. Even when you haven't worked the way we think you should. 
And God, I pray that more than reading these verses as being applicable to our neighbor or the person sitting next to us, Lord, I pray that you might use these verses for us as Christians as a warning, that we would not take lightly your call on our lives. And Lord, that we in this place today would not be found saying one thing and living another. God, forgive us. Forgive us, God, where we do not live as we proclaim we should. And God, this morning, give us a longing to be with you perfectly, with no more sin, no more hypocrisy, no more deceit, but purely in your presence. And God, until that day comes, help us to live with purpose in this day. That even though all around us we see brokenness and sin, you are eradicating it bit by bit through your son, Jesus. May we see him this morning and praise his name because he is the only all-sufficient Savior who can rescue us from the depths of our sin. So to you, God, alone, Today and forevermore, be glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, Jesus teaches in parables so that we might know more about the kingdom of God. Remember, we saw last week in the parable of the sowers that parables were meant by Jesus to bring knowledge to his people and to confuse those who did not believe in him. And so as a Christian this morning, if you're a Christian in this place, God gives you these parables. Jesus teaches you in parables that you might understand the kingdom better than before you read them. And if you're not a Christian this morning, the parables that Jesus teaches are to call you to go to Christ to ask your questions about what these things mean. They're not meant for you to figure out on your own like a puzzle. They are meant to draw you to fall before Christ and to ask him, what do you mean, Jesus? And so as Jesus teaches, he shares this parable, which is broken into two sections with other parables in between, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. I believe there's a reason by that. I believe he's putting bookends on this list of parables to point out that God is busy growing his kingdom somewhat imperceptibly where people don't even really notice that the kingdom is growing. And the kingdom starts small, but one day, he says, the kingdom will be full and the kingdom will be greater than all other kingdoms that have ever reigned upon the earth. And one way God displays that, one way Jesus teaches that is in the parable of the weeds. I want to start out with the first part. The first part where he tells, he tells the parable is verses 24 through 30. And basically the question that I believe he's answering is what the kingdom will be like in this life. Jesus is trying to teach his followers what the kingdom will be like in this life. Not at the end of all things, but right now, what does it look like in the day and age in which we live? Verse 24. 
He, meaning Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. There's a problem. Anyone who is a farmer will recognize it. Anyone who has a yard and a garden will recognize the problem. And that is whenever you plant your garden, whenever you try to make your lawn look nice, if you're a farmer, whenever you plant your crops, something inevitably arises. Weeds. That which you do not desire to be there rises up. Whether you're a farmer or whether you're coming to my house to help me pull all of the weeds out of my backyard, you will know the toil of understanding that while you're trying to produce this beautiful harvest or this beautiful lawn, you are subjected to the bane of weeds. We're told that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So Jesus tells us the story of a man who's sowing good seed, which sounds an awful lot like the parable of the sower we saw last week, right? The the, sows good seed, it lands on different types of soil, it grows or it doesn't, depending on the soil. Here we're told there's a man who sows good seed, the man is active and working, he's working to sow good seed, that will bring about a good harvest, and the seed sowed by the man is going to produce that which the man intends for it to produce, and that is wheat. If you're going to grow wheat, you must sow good seeds of wheat in order to grow it. We're told that this man in the story sows good seed in his field. Well, that makes sense. You don't have the right to go sow good seed in someone else's field. You don't own it. But here we're told that the man is the rightful owner of the field. It is his field. And presumably, the owner of the field can do whatever he so desires with that field. Can I help you? In verse 27, he's going to change the wording. From a man who's sowing good seed to the master. Well, he's the master because he owns the field. It is his field. And he can do with it as he wishes. But there's a problem that arises as the man is sowing good seed in his own rightful field while his servants are sleeping. While his men are sleeping, verse 25, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. What is true about this story is that the man has an enemy. And the enemy of this man does not wish for his crops or his harvest to grow good. But instead, his enemy desires that weeds would rise up among them. The enemy is set in contrast to the man who sows good seed in what is rightfully his. The enemy came while they were sleeping and he sowed weeds instead. And then notice he went away. The enemy often lurks unnoticed, working and sowing in the field. The enemy is the enemy of the owner. Just so you know, the word enemy means adversary. 
And we'll see why that matters in just a minute. It's one who stands in opposition to something or someone. If someone is an adversary of yours, that means they are against you. The owner of this field, he has an enemy who stands in opposition to him. And the enemy sows weeds among the wheat. Now, some of you know this parable by another name. You know it by the wheat and the tares. It's the same word that refers to a poisonous weed that grows up next to and among the wheat. So in the same field, owned by the owner, are both good seed for harvesting wheat and bad seed, which has been sown by the enemy. In the same field grows up both wheat and weeds. Verse 26, so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So both are growing at the same time in the same field, and both grow together. Can I remind you of what the audience for Matthew's gospel is? Who was Matthew primarily writing his gospel for? Jews, very good. He's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience to show Jesus as the rightful Messiah. Matthew starts by linking together the Old Testament promises about Christ. And he's going to show us the fulfillment of those things in Jesus. And so Matthew has in his primary audience, in his primary target, he's thinking of Jews. Let me ask you, are there any people at the time of Jesus who would presume that they were part of the kingdom of heaven? And is it possible that those who might even presume that they're part of the kingdom of heaven may not be? In the same field grows both wheat and weeds. They grow together. And the weeds and the uh, the weeds and the wheat, they look really similar to one another for a while. If you see weeds and wheat grow up together, they're very similar until you get towards the end. And, and towards the end, near harvest, that's when the wheat will produce a brownish type color ear, and the weeds will produce a blackish color. Then you can tell the difference between them. So here's what I think he's getting at as Jesus tells this parable. The weeds and the wheat, they look the same for a while. Outwardly, for a while, you cannot really tell much of a difference between the wheat and the weeds. Remember, he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. That there exists within the same field both wheat and weeds and they look Awfully similar. Okay. When we come to church, we are a local representative of the kingdom of God on earth. Right, So every church, every Bible-believing church that meets together is a local picture 
of what God is doing across the world. He's making a people for himself. And just like the field the owner owns, so too could the church be like that. Where within the church you could have people who look like Christians, sound like Christians, talk like Christians, walk like Christians, and do not love Christ, who they say they follow. That in the church, you can have both those who do truly love Jesus and live for him, and those who outwardly look like they love Jesus, but they don't. And the problem we have today is who's who? Who's the wheat? And who's the weeds? Can I help you? It was the same way in the first century. At the very beginning of Christianity, at the very beginning of followers of Jesus, there were both those who truly followed him and loved him and those who looked like they loved him but didn't. And the only way you could tell the difference was to wait until the end. In this master's field are both wheat and weeds, and they look very similar to one another until the very, very end. And the truth of what Jesus is teaching is that this is what the kingdom is going to look like in this day. Right now, today, you know what the church is going to look like? There's going to be wheat, and there's going to be weeds, and they're going to be growing up together, and sometimes they're going to be nearly impossible to distinguish from one another. So what are we to do? I want you to notice what happens. Verse 27, and the servants of the master of the house came to him, master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? You notice they're asking the same questions we would ask today. God, how can there be both those who really do love you and hypocrites in the same spot? How could that happen? Hopefully we're preaching the gospel, right? Hopefully we're teaching the truth of the Bible. So God, how could it be that if we're teaching the truth, if we're sowing good seed, how could it be that in the same place would be those who are followers of you and those who are only acting like followers of yours? The disciples, these people, the servants of the master are asking the exact same question. Did you not sow good seed in your field, master? Yes, he did. So how does it have weeds? For us today, we preach the gospel, but how come there are still weeds in the church then? How come there are still those who are acting like Christians but don't have any love for Jesus? Verse 28, Jesus is going to answer the question. Praise God, Jesus answers the question. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, do you want us to go and gather them? Right? Here's a good The enemy did it, not me. I sowed good seed in my field. The enemy came. He sowed weeds. And then the servant said, well, then should we go get them? We got to get the weeds out. Right? 
we got to get the hypocrites out. And so the servants have a naturally good desire to want to go and let's get the weeds out of the field then. 29, but he, meaning Jesus, said no. No? Don't go get the weeds? Now listen, if I've watched VeggieTales at all, I know you're supposed to go get those weeds. Especially the rumor one. You're not supposed to let that one grow. Jesus says, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. <gasps> Uh-oh, so we're going to get to that in just a second. That's an important distinction. Jesus is saying, you're not going to get the weeds. And there's a reason you're not going to get them. And the reason you're not going to get them is because you may take up some wheat too. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, and but gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus says that this man who owed the field, he says to his servants, you're not going to go get the weeds. He says, let them grow together until harvest. And then at harvest time, he says, I will send the reapers out. And they will gather up the weeds to be burned, and they will gather the wheat then into the barn. So we see what life in this kingdom looks like now. There's both weeds and wheat. There are servants who recognize that the, the weeds have grown up and that it needs to be taken care of. And yet Jesus tells them that it's not for them to go and do. The master has a plan. I want to point that out to you. And so the question lingers in the ear. Why did he not want his servants to go get the weeds? Well, the answer, I believe, is in the interpretation. Verse 36. The master says he's going to allow the wheat and the weeds to grow up together. And remember, when the Jews were looking to the Messiah, what did they expect the Messiah to do when he showed up? To put it in context of our parable, the Jewish people expected the Messiah to immediately go to weed pulling when he got here. And then Jesus says, no, let them grow together. Thankfully, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, interpreted the parable for us. Verse 36, then he left the crowds. Notice who he left. Who did he leave? Right, because the parables were not for them to understand. He leads the crowd and went into the house, and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. That's the right response, by the way, to parables. It's not to try and figure it out on your own, but to go to Jesus and say, would you tell us what you mean? Verse 37, he answered, Jesus answers them and says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Well, we know that the Son of Man from Matthew 9, verse 6, is, is a, a title that Jesus gave himself, that he was the Son of Man. And we're told that the Son of Man, the one who sows the good seed, is Jesus. He's the one who sows the good seed in the field. So Jesus is the active working sower of good seed, he is always good, he's always faithful, and everything he sows is good. And Jesus sows the seed of the kingdom. 
He is filled with love. He is filled with goodness towards us. May we never accuse Jesus of authoring evil or desiring someone to sin. All of his acts are according to his love and his faithfulness. He is the son of man. Jesus is the one who sows the good seed. Verse 38, the field is the world. Remember we said that the the man who sowed the good seed sowed it in his field, that which rightly belonged to him. So guess what rightly belongs to Jesus? The world. All of creation belongs to Jesus. But I want to point out to you that this world that the Bible uses here There's different words for world, and each one have a different connotation. This is talking about not necessarily the big blue ball that we live on, but the inhabitants who live on it. Jesus is the master who rightly exercises his ownership of the field, which is the inhabitants. Jesus is the right sower. He is the rightful owner. He is the king. And everything he sows in his field is good. Verse 38, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. According to Jesus, there are only two camps you can belong to. You are either good seed or you are Weeds. Uh, For those of you who are hoping for a weed-wheat combo, like a hybrid, there's not. There's no such thing. You're either wheat or you are a weed, and there is no other distinction necessary. Those are the only two types. There are those who belong to the kingdom. They are sons of the kingdom, he says. That means they belong to God. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one, the adversary, the one who is opposed to all that God stands for. The weeds are those who are not just neutral towards the master. They are in opposition to the master. To be friends with the world is to be enemies with God. Only two types, and there are no others. We're told that Jesus is the rightful master, the field is the world, and all the inhabitants in it. Jesus sows good seed, which is sons of the kingdom. He is producing sons of the kingdom, and the enemy is seeking to produce sons of the evil one. Can I remind you that this enemy, we're told in verse 39, is the devil. The enemy is the devil. Satan is active, just as Jesus is. Is active sowing good seed. Even as he is raising up sons of the kingdom, Satan is also active, though sometimes unnoticed in the night while no one is looking and asleep. He is actively seeking to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus told us that in John chapter 10. When he says, I'm the good shepherd, Satan is the one who seeks to destroy any allegiance to God, any semblance of the kingdom. We're told in 1 John that Satan has been active from the beginning. Cain, who murdered his brother, was described as of the evil one. John 10.10 tells us that the thief came to steal and to kill and destroy. 1 John 5.19, we're told the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. As Jesus is working, sowing good seed, rescuing sinners, making sons of the kingdom, Satan is also working. Remember the parable of the sower. That which fell along the path, 
The evil one came to snatch away before it could grow. In this day, when God is rescuing people as sons of the kingdom, Satan is actively working to deceive, to steal, to kill, to destroy. Any mention of the gospel or of the name of Christ. So why isn't Jesus doing something about this? Why is he allowing it to continue? Why the delay in this justice? Why didn't Jesus just show up and pull all the weeds at once? 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards us. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus' delay is not because he's soft on sin or because he doesn't care about weeds. Jesus' delay is because of his mercy and his grace, allowing the word, the seed, to be proclaimed so that people might turn and trust in him. Don't presume upon his delay as somehow he has given up or lost hope. He is, in fact, working to the proper conclusion of all things. The work of Jesus is quite patient. His patience is seen in his planting and waiting till harvest. And the good seed Jesus plants will come to full harvest. Do not doubt that. Jesus will produce wheat. He will produce sons of the kingdom. And daughters of the kingdom too. You're included in that, ladies. We can't presume upon the patience of Jesus. We must be active sowing the seed of the word of the kingdom so that others might believe and turn and trust in him. But notice he says there's coming a conclusion, verse 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. So God is telling us that in this kingdom which Jesus has ushered in, that one day it will come to a full conclusion and the kingdom will be ushered in in full. And in that day, the harvest will come. That harvest means that God is not absent or disconnected from his field. He's not absent from this world. He's not absent from his kingdom. We shouldn't presume that because there is a delay that God's not actively working or caring. Jesus is bringing everything to the Father's desired conclusions, Colossians chapter 1. So do not be deceived. Justice is coming, verses 40 through 43. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. Remember he talked about he would send his reapers? The reapers are the angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all law breakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who, he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus tells us in this parable there's coming a harvest one day. There's coming ultimate justice one day. It is coming, and on that day it will be both a day of joy for believers and a day of absolute condemnation for unbelievers. It will be a day of absolute rejoicing for those who have been rescued by Christ, and it will be a day of absolute sorrow and misery for those who have not trusted in him. Justice is coming. Now, right now, both believers and unbelievers might exist in the same church. They might look the same. They might dwell on the earth together. But when Jesus consummates his kingdom... He will finally bring to a fitting 
realization, all that he says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Just as earthly harvesting leads to gathering of the weeds and burning them with fire, so it will be when Jesus returns. At the second coming of Christ, righteous justice punishment will be brought. Evil will not go unchecked forever. So we see here that the work of Jesus and the work of Satan is not some type of Star Wars dualism against the good and the evil. Like they're both the same and both equally powerful. Satan is not as powerful as Jesus. Satan is mighty. Jesus is all mighty. This is not something where these are two equal forces warring against each other, tug of war. This is the fact that Satan has already lost. And Jesus is just waiting by his patience to allow people to be brought into the kingdom by the preaching of the word. They might hear the good news of Christ and turn away from their sin and trust in him and become sons. And I'm thankful that God did not exercise immediate judgment on me. I'm grateful that he allowed me to reach 18, that I might be saved. Because if he'd have come when I was 17, I'd have been lost forever. And if you're a Christian today, you are a testimony of the fact of God's patience. But do not presume that his patience will go on forever. He will bring ultimate justice. And I don't know about you, but I want God to bring ultimate justice. I don't want to see evil win. And I can only say that because I'm one who's been rescued from my injustice. I'm the one who's been rescued from my sin. I want God to be just. And I want him to exercise that justice. But do not presume that because he delays now that it's not coming or that he doesn't care. Jesus will send out his angels to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin. Whose kingdom is it? His kingdom. And guess what Jesus is going to do? In that last age, when he comes again, he's going to take out all sin, all lawlessness, all lawbreakers. Every bit of sin will be eradicated from his kingdom. There will no longer be wheat and weeds together. There will only be wheat. There will only be those whom he has rescued and Jesus will, at his return, gather, collect to carry off all causes of sin and lawbreakers. That's anything that is in opposition to God. All wickedness, everything to tempt us will be taken. And Satan's time will be up. The kingdom of heaven will be marked by the absence of sin and all lawbreakers. They will be thrown into the fiery furnace, which is, Old Testament, which is biblical language, for the judgment of God, separation from God forever, feeling only his wrath against your sin for all time. And we're told that that is a time of extreme suffering, a time of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a picture to give you of the type of suffering, the type of turmoil we will face when, we're, when those who have rejected Christ finally find themselves under the full wrath of God for their rebellion against him. And by the way, this is a real place. This is not a fictitious place. God does this, he says, in verse 43, so that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. God does all of this. The barn of verse 30 is the kingdom of the father. The ultimate destination for the sons of the kingdom is to reside in the presence of their father forever. 
It's a good thing to be in his barn. I've been in some barns I wouldn't want to go in. This barn is going to be great. It's the kingdom of our Father. It is to dwell with him perfectly forever. No more sin, no more disease, no more worry, no more temptation, but to dwell with God forever, and he will do it. And Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Can I help you? There's only one person who gives ears that can hear. It's Jesus. Only he can cause our ears to hear. Jesus says, let he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus uses parables to teach his children about the kingdom and to help us today. So what does this mean for us? It means the return of Jesus is going to be a day of glory for us, but a fretful day for those who have not trusted in him. And so we better be busy. We better be busy sharing the gospel of Christ to a world that does not love him. Because that day of Jesus will be a day of terror for those who have not trusted in him. So, and, and here's what I encourage you the rest of this week, along with Psalm 103 that we read this morning. If you go a few verses ahead to verse 47 and through 50, you find the parable of the net, which you should read in, in, in connection with this parable. Because they're both saying very similar things. When you drag a net along the bottom of the ocean, you're going to come up with all kinds of stuff. Good fish, bad fish, junk. The same is true in the kingdom today. Is that God is rescuing, but within the kingdom, there's going to be those who look and those who actually love. There's going to be those who look like Jesus and act like Jesus, but don't love him. And then there's going to be those who love him. And both exist. But here's the problem. Why does he not have the servants go pull them up? Well, because the servants can't tell the difference like he can. He says you might accidentally take up some wheat when you go out there. Guess who does not make mistakes when it comes to right judgments? 1 Samuel 16, in connection with the difference between David and Saul, and, and Samuel says he's going to show which one is going to be the king after Saul, and, and, uh, and Jesse begins to bring in his boys and line them up, and the first one comes up, and, and Samuel says, that's not him. You would think he was, because he was the oldest, probably looked the part, looked like a king. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, God tells us that God doesn't look like humans look. God looks on the heart. We only see what is external. The good news is, is that when we get to the end of the kingdom, when we get to the consummation of the kingdom, when Jesus returns, Jesus isn't going to be making erroneous judgments. He will know exactly who the weed is and exactly who the weed is. He will know the difference between the two. He knows it now and he'll declare it then. And so we can't fool Jesus. We can't make him think that we're saved and him not know it. He knows who are his. And one day, he will either say, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. And oh, the Jews in their time, they thought they knew Jesus. And unfortunately, they were presuming upon their religiosity to make them right before God. That if I look the part, then I'll be accepted. And what is Jesus teaching us here? It ain't about looking the part, because the weeds can look an awful lot like the wheat. But there's only one who sows hearts of wheat. There's only one who rescues and transforms into wheat. There's only one who knows the heart and knows all things about us and rightly judges, and it is the master of the field. It's Christ. So what does this mean for us today? If you're an unbeliever here this morning, 
I want you to realize there are only two groups. We are either in love with the world or we're in love with Jesus. And there is no middle ground. I need you to see that you're not neutral towards God the same way I was not neutral towards God before I was saved. We are either in love with Christ or we are in love with the world. And the good news for you as an unbeliever is that the master of the field, he died in your place and mine that we might be made new. And so I'm begging you, if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, I'm begging you to stop trying to earn salvation, to stop trying to be your own God, and instead turn away from that. Turn away from self-righteousness and sin and turn to the only rightful king and trust in him because he alone died to pay for your sin and mine. And as Christians this morning, let us go to Christ with our questions. When we're perplexed, when we say here today and we go, God, why is there so much hypocrisy among us? Why, God, are there both those who are really following you and those who are only acting? Let us go to Christ with our questions. When we're perplexed, let's not run away from him. Let's run to his word. God wants us to know these things. Let's study his word more. Let's go to him with our questions, knowing that like the servants, he will teach us what is true. Also, we live and minister today with the end in mind. We don't let the hypocrisy that wages, we don't let the, the evil that wages around us stop us from ministering and living with the conclusion in mind. The master has already told us how this whole thing comes to an end. Let's live with that in mind, that there's more than just this life and the struggles we face. There is a glorious day of redemption and rescue that awaits us. Let's not just live for now. He shows us what the kingdom looks like now that we might anticipate and look forward to the day in which there will be no more wheat and weeds together, but only the wheat shining in the kingdom of the Father. And finally, we need to trust God's righteous judgments. Right? For the, we, let's be honest, we can't rightly discern hearts. I can't know your heart fully. You can't know mine. We're really poor at making those judgments. The same way Jesus says to his servants, no, 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 you're not going to pull the weeds. I will have them pulled. It's the same way that we as Christians need to understand and we as people need to understand. We don't rightly know each other's hearts. We need to trust that God will make right judgments and that nothing he does is wrong or evil. It is all good, and we can trust him. And so we don't have to fret. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry, oh, the weed's going to take over. Oh, what's going to happen to us? We don't have to worry because we trust that our good God knows the difference between wheat and weeds, and he promises he will separate them both out, both his, the wheat into the glorious worship of God forever and to the weeds if into destruction and into punishment. God will not make wrong judgments because he knows the heart. And so this morning, I want to encourage us, let's not try to pull the wool over God's eyes anymore. Let's not try to act like we can be one thing and he doesn't notice. Let us truly love Christ and follow him. Whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time, let's love Christ and let's follow him with all we have. 
waiting for the day when we will worship him forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that this morning you will work among this group. God, I know that in any gathering of people, there are most likely those who are uh, truly saved and those who are only acting saved. And God, I pray that you will show our hearts. God, that you might lay us bare and show us who we really are. And God, if there's anyone in this room who's trying to act like a Christian apart from love for you, God, I pray that you might expose that to them today. Lord, that they might turn to you and trust in you alone. And Father, I pray that you might help us as Christians to live understanding that while we live in the kingdom now, where both wheat and weeds are growing together, and God, we can't tell the difference many times. You know the difference. And you call us to proclaim the gospel so that those who would truly believe would turn to you. So God, help us not be discouraged and help us not presume that you are done working. But may we be faithful proclaimers of the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection that we might be saved from our sin. Lord, I pray that you might draw people, woo them to yourself by the good news of your son's death. That people might trust in you and worship you for all time. God, I pray this morning you will make wheat out of weeds. And God, I thank you that Satan is not more powerful than you. I thank you that you are almighty. And so we bow before you today and we worship you. So God, help those in this room. God, if they need to turn to you and trust in you for the first time, give them the courage to step out of their seat and to come up and talk to me. God, if there are those who have questions about what it means to be a Christian, give them courage, God, to reach out to someone in this room and to ask them, how might I know that I'm saved? God, if there are Christians in this room who haven't followed you in perfect obedience, God, who have, I mean, we, none of us follow in perfect, but God, if, if there are those who haven't been baptized as you've called them to, they trust in you, but they, they haven't followed you in the first step of obedience, God, I pray you would give them the courage to step out and ask, what does baptism mean? Lord, I pray that, there, that those in this room who are spiritual orphans, they don't belong to a church, they've been bouncing around to multiple churches, they're they're seeking something. God, I pray you might give them the courage to talk to me or someone else about what it means to join a church. And Lord, if this would be the church they would join, that they would have the courage to do so. Lord, I pray that more than anything, you'd help us to respond to your word. God, that we'd be changed by what we've heard today and what we've studied. That you might root out sin and increase our love for you. Do it this morning, God. As we respond to you, we ask you to receive glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.